Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl. TheWanderingOwl.com Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts Sarenth Odinson and James Stovall talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? Taita, father, son, becoming weaker in the sky every day as we transition from this wonderful summer we've had into the fall, the changing of the leaves, the change of temperature starting to come to us, making us start to think about the shortening of days, to make us think about the shortening of our own lives, about ancestors, about connection, Pachumama, Mother Earth, giving us all of your bounties, the apple trees, the pear trees so full, wild grapes, things growing and coming to fruition, corn being harvested. Sacred Mother, Sacred Father, thank you so much for everything that you give us. Bless us more each and every day as we continue to do this work for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You are listening to episode number four. I am James Stovall, and with me tonight, as always, is my good friend and co-host, Saranth Odinson. How's it going tonight, Saranth? Going quite well. Great, great. Were you able to get some sleep before we started the show? Oh, that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Back to back to back over time, and then let's head right into a recording session. Oh, joy. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. The best place to find the show, if you're not finding it there already, is on Anchor FM and the Anchor app that's available through iTunes and Google Play, Google Store. And you can, through that app, leave us voicemails that we can use on the show. Uh, We can answer your questions about any topic regarding shamanism or spirituality. And if we don't know the answer, we're going to track down somebody that does. But there's a good chance that we've been exposed to it if if it's been around for a while. But... You can find us as well on iTunes, Google Play. You can find us on uh, Stitcher. You can find us on all kinds of different platforms and applications. And uh, make sure you review the show. Leave us a good review. Share the show with your friends. Let other people know about us so they can find us. So I just wanted to mention that I'll be appearing at uh, Ann Arbor Pagan Pride coming up here at the end of September. So if you're in driving distance of Ann Arbor, you can come and see my class. That'll be, I think it's 11 a.m. And Sarah, you're attending some classes there or or presenting some classes there as well, aren't you? Uh, Yes, I sure am. And Ann Arbor Pagan Pride this year will be um, held, let's see, that'll be... Uh, on WCC campus, Washtenaw Community College, and that'll be September the 22nd, starting at 11 a.m. till 6 p.m. So the 22nd, make your way out to the Washtenaw Community College and come see us. Uh, Mimir's Brunner Kindred will be doing its first public ritual there nice, uh, as part of the main ritual. Fantastic. And also, uh, for anybody that's listening, uh, this coming Thursday from noon to 2 um, I'm going to be back on our old stomping grounds. Uh, I'm going to be joining Linda Newman on the Answers with the Astro Bag Lady show on Para X. So uh, 
noon to two Eastern time. You can join us in the chat room and leave feedback. And Linda and I always have a good time chatting and, and talking about various things. She's known a ton of drummers and, and awesome Native American medicine men. And so there's always a good conversation between us. So come and join us for that as well. Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah. She asked me to come on there. I'm like, sure, why not? It's always a good time. So with that said, I think I'm going to start segueing into uh, introducing our guest. Certainly. So this is Richard Norris. And uh, Richard, I'm going to give brief, brief interaction, and then we're going to dig into the meat of why he is here. This is an initiate of the Starry Bull tradition, about initiated a year ago, and is a member of the Starry Bear um, husband and father uh, describes himself as a lackluster occultist, and I kind of want to dig into that because I think that's that's actually one of the funniest descriptions I've I've heard for a self descriptor. <laughs> uh, studies philosophy, religion, and politics in his free time, and centers um, his experiences around the Starry Pole tradition, especially the toys of Dionysus, and began seeing northern gods interacting with the Dionysian pantheon. So, uh, welcome to the show, Richard. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so okay. much for joining us. I, we really appreciate it. No problem. So we're going to dive right in. So I'm curious to, to kind of dig into the meat of what you mean by I'm a lackluster occultist. That, that is a fascinating <laughs> description. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, um, lackluster, dilettante, um, just... You know what? Let's just be fair and honest here. I'm just lazy. That's what it really comes down to. I'm lazy. <laughs> know thyself. Exactly. Hey. Exactly. So important. But um, mm-hmm. I have been interested in things like the paranormal and the supernatural ever since I was just a kid. Uh, it all started with a really bad television show, as I think it does for probably uh, a good portion of people. It's called Friday the 13th. It was the TV show, not yes. the movie. I remember oh, that okay. show. That was actually a pretty good show for its time. It, yeah, it wasn't terrible. Which is and, which was um, saying a lot for them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, I remember watching that and just being like fascinated in my living room. And I went to the school library practically the next day and looked to see if they had anything like that, books that were about those subjects and sure enough they did they had um they had a few and i i picked them up and i haven't stopped reading since and um of course we're talking about being introduced to like the sorts of things you'd be seeing in movies and things like that but eventually segued in to my other elementary school i went to had a book on just plain witchcraft and it was it still took it in the, in the demonic direction that most Christians actually think that witchcraft is like centered in, but um, it was it was it just still fascinated me. It, it had the sabbats, it had the asbats, it had um, it also gave a detailed account of Isabel Gowdy. Okay, and that that's really a name helped. I don't know. That's a name I don't know. Can you dig into that? Okay, Isabel Gowdy was um, a woman in Scotland who was accused of witchcraft. And she gives one of the most lurid, detailed accounts of what she and her um, sisters got up to. She gives a, um, a really full account of her initiation, basically, into witchcraft. And they actually had it in the book. Hmm. So um, 
what I did was, of course, I, I followed it as close as I could <laughs> when I was like eight freaking years old. <laughs> as you do. Yeah, exactly. In the darkness of my house, you know, with one foot under my um, heel and one hand on top of my head, promised to give everything about myself to the devil and in return for witchcraft. And yeah, uh, there, there was no like magical appearance of the devil. I didn't have to kiss him under under his tail or anything like that. It just... But yeah, oh, that was that was pretty much where I started. <laughs> you know, that's funny. It, it, you're giving me flashbacks to my own childhood. I had, I think my my first encounters were similar. I don't remember what the the origin was because I I had read so many different, you know, the sword and sorcery books were always my favorites, and then TV shows and oh, yeah. movies and and comic books that sort of thing. But I remember the middle school library at my my school they had a book about witchcraft and it was the same thing it sounds very similar to the type of book you were talking about for some reason i had it remember it having just a weird yellow cover on it it was like a mustardy sort of yellow and i was fascinated same thing we dug through it and i'm like ooh, what can i do with this no 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 appearances <laughs> at that point in time either i agree with you i think i yeah. wasn't doing it quite right yet <laughs> <laughs> you need to hone the magical will that's what you need to do <laughs> Hard to do that when you're eight. So you're telling me that Satan stood you both, though. Yeah. What we're telling you is that libraries, they're awesome. Yes, they are. <laughs> um, and that that's um, the sort of like the big magical poof and the appearance that I was waiting for didn't happen. But that's not to say that I didn't necessarily have supernatural things happen in my life. Um when I was five, I was with my family in the living room. My sister was there. She was three years old, my half-sister, and a lot of other family members. And we just heard this big thud upstairs. And um, at the time, my grandfather was living with us, what was really my great-grandfather before my adoption. And we ran upstairs, my sister and I. We were the first ones up there. Five years old, three years old. We go there, and he's laying on the floor. Uh, he's... We didn't know it at the time, but he had had a stroke. He hit his head off the sink, and um, they, they wheel him out in the ambulance almost immediately, and he passes away. Well, after that, you hear footsteps in the house. Doors would open and slam. You would feel like you were constantly being watched, and it just it got really freaking creepy. And this is a this is a activity that kept going on for like 10 years afterwards and some days it was almost completely unbearable to even like be in the house because he was just so pissed <laughs> and I, I eventually just got sick of it I don't know what age I was but um, the same person that would sell himself off to the devil goes and takes a cross <laughs> takes, takes water in a sink puts the cross in the water prays that um, Christ would bless the water, gets in a little cobalt blue decanter he kind of had, and starts sprinkling it all over the upstairs so I don't get the hell out. <laughs> so I had had enough. It's over. It's done. I'm not dealing with this crap anymore. And, like, for a couple months, I was, it would actually calm down, and I was I was relieved. So, yeah, it's, it's not just a thing where... I had one disappointing experience and it stopped. It, it's it's always been there, and I've always been aware that it was. Even even during the time when I was uh, 
in my late teens, early twenties, just a completely virulent anti-theist. It it still there was no avoiding it. There was just none. So yeah. Um, wow. So so if one team wasn't going to work for you, damn it, one of them was. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Look, someone has to answer me, damn it. Come on. That's right. <laughs> now, that's something that you're good at at a young age. Someone's going to answer or I'll keep annoying. Right? That's, that's, a, that's a life power. skill right there. <laughs> <laughs> never underestimate the power of a pushy child. That's right. So, so yeah, please, please continue. Um. So that was that was pretty much like the the height of my magical experience whenever I was before puberty, and then about the time when I was in high school, I discovered Wicca. Oh, fun! So, how, okay, how did you how did you come to Wicca then? Was it through Cunningham? Was it through a formal initiation? How, how did it that? Was, it was through Uncle Bucky's Big Blue Book. Wow! <laughs> Classic, excellent. Oh my God, that freaking book, man! But, um, yeah, I, I practiced for a bit, and basically the thing that really um, hit it off for me the most was just the energy practices and stuff like that. Um, but it, it got too difficult to do anything at all in the sort of religious household I was, so that just kind of died off. Um, but, yeah, on and off again, there's just this constant brush up against this this occasional frisson with the other, and then... Mm-hmm couple years ago now i'm i'm sitting here i'm like well, what was i I was like 34 when this all started with the story bull stuff so mm-hmm. start you know 34 so it's, it's been a long time coming gotcha yeah so can you dig into a little bit of what the starry bull tradition is um I don't want you to dig into anything you shouldn't like in terms of initiation secrets or what have you, but can you, can you give folks a, like a scattershot of, of what the Starry Bull tradition is about, what it is? The Starry Bull tradition is a tradition that centers around Dionysus and the gods and spirits that we can see kind of clustering around him in the old lore and in modern experiences that people have with him whenever they go and engage with him now. Akik Orphism is about, in a very, very sort of Broadway, I guess, release, and freedom. But it's, that's not just what you focus on, it's what you do afterwards that's probably the most important. But those are probably the two gateways through which you can see through the entire tradition. So, Mm -hmm. when I talk about things like release... It can be something that's purely psychological. Not that the gods or spirits are themselves purely psychological, but some of the things that you're dealing with in your life, they can they can help you slip the bonds of them, mm-hmm. even if, even if just temporarily, even if it's just something like clinical depression or PTSD. It can give you a space where you can either go into that and accept that part of yourself, or temporarily have some. Um, breathing room from it from where when it squeezes you down it can release you from spiritual conditions of ancestral debt or conditions where you've upset a deity and you didn't even know it and it can give you ways of redressing that 
it's it's taking those those terms of release and freedom to, to like their their fullest possible expression within a polytheistic framework. Hmm. So kind of engaging this idea of utter utter freedom to where your your fetters are cast aside in a yeah. very powerful way. Yeah, and sometimes what fetters you isn't exactly what you think it is. So you might be surprised or you might realize that you actually want to hang on to it. So it can become difficult, which, I mean, let's be honest, any sort of actually actual lived spirituality isn't going to be all sunshine and roses. And it's going to be tough sometimes. But that's the way it is. But it's Dionysus. I mean, he's just the god of drunken revelry, right? Oh. <laughs> yeah, sure. I've been in a room full of no. drunk people. It's not always a good time. No, it is not. <laughs> um, he is... He can be everything that you've heard about him. He really can be. But there's this... There's this terrible stillness to him for me that presents itself sometimes. There's this... There's a sense of predation where, I don't know how to explain it. If you're lawful prey, he will chase you. He can, he can just put you right to ground and pin you down. And it can be terrifying. So the, the vast history around him and in all the other different faces that he might have worn, such as Zagreus or Sebasios or whatever... It's all there. It's always present. It's never gone. It's just, have you seen it? Have you looked for it? Mm-hmm. And most people never do. They just, they, oh, party god, drinking and, you know, smorgies and whatever. Yeah, that's fine, but there's just so much more. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that. Does it ever feel limiting that that's the, the first image that people have? Is that it's just a big party sort of thing? Is that... Does that limit feel limiting at all? Well, sometimes in describing him, yeah. I had one person who um, he was trying to proselytize to me to be a Christian. I'm like, no, no, I'm a, I'm a polytheist. Mm-hmm. He's like, a polytheist? What's that? Well, I worship many gods. Well, you don't worship the one with the orgies, do you? <laughs> it's like, oh my god, how do I even explain this to you? <laughs> Define yeah. the one with the orgies, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's sometimes yeah, it's limiting, and a lot of the time it's actually kind of surprising how much people take that image and just pastiche it all over polytheism in, in total, and it it just kind of like makes me want to pull my hair out. So yeah, I guess limiting is very much a word for it, but that's because. Delora draws the popular imagination so very hard. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me that like even the, the Dionysian rituals that you read about or that happen at big festivals or events or something, they're always the you know, the off the hinges sort of thing and, and I don't know, that to me it just seems very tiring. I don't know if I could keep up with that sort of tradition. <laughs> it's not always like that. Um but it it um it can definitely test your endurance. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah, it can definitely be intense. But it's 
it's not necessarily about always dancing or screwing or anything like that. There's there's serious alt- alternation between different extremes. There are there are valid forms of asceticism, I think, that could also be pointed out. There's one gentleman I know of, uh, Marcus Gage. He's an absolutely fantastic artist. He is yes. a Dionysian. And, man, you want to talk about ascetic. Man. <laughs> he, um, he lives as simply as possible. And it, that's just how he lives his Dionysian virtues and how he connects to him and how he, he worlds his entire religious experience, it seems. And I don't want to necessarily speak for him or anything, but that's been like my perception of him very much. So there's this wide variance in the possibility of options that most people don't really think to explore. And it's, it's painful, I think, that they don't. Is you could get so much more out of the entire experience of Dionysus or of any of the other gods or spirits around him than just, okay, time to, you know, shag and cut a rug. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, a lot of what you're talking about in regards to Dionysus, I reflect on my own um, experiences of people coming to and trying to understand Odin, you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I see a lot of one-to-one because, you know, both gods of, of wine and expertise and madness and inspiration, but both can be quite sobering and very mm, huge draws in a lot of different ways for their followers. And I, I think the uh, the Lewis quote about... Uh, He's, you know, he's not a tame lion comes into play very heavily here for, for both gods. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with that. It reminds me, actually, uh, a little bit of, uh, like, trickster deities in general, like Coyote. Uh, you know, sometimes the butt of the joke, sometimes on your side, sometimes very much your the the aggressor working against you. Has to, you have to be scared into doing something different, and that trickster sort of element that comes at things many different ways like that. Yep. I think part of the role of being a trickster is not always being the trickster. Right, exactly. So you don't always step into there thinking, what's he going to do to me? Sometimes it's just straightforward, you know? Let, it's just straightforward fairness, and other times it's like, <laughs> I have cards up my sleeve. So, Yeah. I think that I relate to I, I relate this uh, experience of Dionysus that you've been bringing forward here in a, in a kind of roundabout sense to uh, studies of esoteric things like alchemy and um, you know other disciplines even even simple paranormal experiences you know people um, I, I see this a lot on ghost hunting shows where people get really hyped and really hyped because oh the demon's gonna come forth and really it's just this pissed off spirit. <laughs> cantankerously, you know, walking around the house when you get really right down to it. <laughs> People yeah. are making it out both to be more and less of what than what it is. Yeah. Trying to appreciate the thing for what it is rather than what you've already preconceived and try to, like, hammer it down into. Mm-hmm. Yep, I very much get that. Yeah, that, um, that whole alchemy angle, that's... Oh. 
Okay, so this actually touches upon why I got involved in this in the first place. And again, the subject of lackluster occultism. <laughs> Please, I, go ahead. Uh, like some other uh, people I know, I am actually rather a fan of John Michael Greer and his writing. So I had actually picked up a copy of his uh, Celtic Golden Dawn that he had published, uh, basically outlining the magical traditions of the the magical uh, practices of the, the tradition he had founded after he started stepping down from the American Order of Druids. Um, and I, he included alchemy in it, and he included a form of it I had never heard before called spagyrics. Spagyric alchemy uh, itself deals with um, doing alchemy through plants mm. rather than metals. Mm. Okay. And I was, I was just stunned because I, I had never heard of that before. No, and, that um, does sound pretty interesting, I have to admit. Yeah, it is. So, I start reading through it, and a, a year passes. And um, I was also reading The House of Vines at the same time, uh, Sanian's blog. <laughs> That's dangerous work. Yeah, yeah. Very much um, Very much recommend, do not recommend, because you'll, you'll get pulled in. But, mm-hmm. um... <laughs> And I, I picked up John Michael Greer's book again after about a, a year of having it. I was reading through the process. I was like, okay, wait a minute. See, you're you're taking the plant, you're burning it, you're you're tearing it up. You're you're tearing it up first. You're burning it. You are soaking it in alcohol. It's going to be mildly warm, and then you are consuming it this sounds really really dionysian they they used distilled alcohol from red wine and mm. it's it's almost emphatic they're all they're always saying use red wine if you can't actually ferment the plant itself and create its own alcohol out of itself use red wine because it's solar it's the most vivacious form of alcohol that they can think of it's it's the perfect menstruum, otherwise. And it was like, it's like Dionysus was smiling about behind the flasks of all these alchemists during the Renaissance whenever they were putting this all together. <laughs> and then I stopped. Mm-hmm. I really thought about it. I was like, damn. Damn, that actually sounds like it's, it's, yeah, I'm going to go have, go ahead and just email John Michael Green and see what he thinks about this. And he's like, yeah, it actually sounds like you've really battened onto something that um, is important to you and might be solid. So I would go ahead and go explore that if I were you. Just one of the things I deeply appreciate about the man is uh, even if he his work draws out stuff that he wasn't originally intending, he's he's all for go for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He is an experimenter for excellence, and and he'll let anyone else do it too. So. I was thinking about it, and I knew for a fact that a new Dionysian group had um, sprung up under Sanian. So I got out my tarot cards, and I shuffled them up, thinking, should I join this group or not? And I turned the first card over, and it's the King of Cups. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, I, I don't even need to read into this. That's exactly a yes, and yeah, no more intellectualizing, and I'm going in. Hmm. So I go and I um, 
ask him for an invite to the underground, and well, that was that was the beginning for me. <sighs> you know, it's really funny. Just a little aside here, you guys. I it occurred to me just all of a sudden. Uh, even on my my Instagram page today, I, I shared a picture. I was out doing a lot of yard work today, and completely forgetting what the topic of the the show was going to be about tonight. And now you're mentioning red wine. Today, when I was doing some yard work, getting ready for the fall, I was completely obsessed with all the wild grapes that we have this year. <laughs> and I, I just all of a sudden realized that I took pictures of them and everything. Just the wild grapes have overrun my yard this year. It's kind of funny that, I don't know, I'm just sitting here and all of a sudden going, hey, look, a little preview to the show right here in the yard work today. That's awesome. Oh, excellent. That's very awesome. He's so, saying hello. Yeah, me. apparently. Yeah. Apparently. Interesting. So are you going to harvest them? <laughs> you know what? I'm thinking about it now. So <laughs> So when they, they introduce the plants to the red wine, explain that process one more time to me. Let me hear how that okay. went again. It's, it's similar to the way that Dionysus in his first incarnation, um, what some people called Zagreus, his first incarnation, was killed, actually. They, they took him. Mm -hmm. They stabbed him, cut him up into pieces, and they burned him, and then they boiled him, and then they consumed him. With spagyric alchemy, the process that John Michael Greer lays out, it's, it's rather similar you dry out the plant that you're going to be working with that typically has some sort of astrological significance uh, under a single planet. You dry it out, you grind it up, and then you burn it. No. No, I'm, I'm missing something here. Oh, no, I sound like an idiot. <laughs> Not at all. No. no. You still know more than I do. <laughs> no, this is this is fascinating stuff because uh, you, it's it's a reenactment of, um, of of the, the the Titans and the renewal of Dionysus. This yeah. makes a good deal of sense, even if, even if it's not a one to one parallel. Right, and given the fact that Renaissance alchemy itself was something of a, of a, a revival we don't really necessarily have any information, I think, on the kind of spagyric alchemy they might have been doing in Greece or Rome. It might have all been metallic, so far as I know. For the alchemists I've spoken to, they're like, yeah, the spagyric process wasn't um, even developed until the Renaissance. And so, but the fact that it, it so parallels what Dionysus went through, just, it, it it's just, too much there's too much similarity there and that's just what struck me so if so. you could could you explain to me a little bit how uh, the context and the usage of the word alchemy because like for example I, I i'm familiar with the stories of trying to transmute lead into gold and energetic alchemy i've experienced a few different times where we're transforming something about ourselves into a, a more positive vibration or more positive usage 
what would you, uh, how would the alchemy work with a plant? Are you trying to transform its properties or are you trying to use one plant as a substitute for another or transmute its properties into another plant? How, how are we using that, that term in this context? In spagyric alchemy, the, the principal idea is refinement, I suppose, of you kill the plant, you separate its sulfur, its mercury, its salt, and then you recombine them later on when they're all purified to kind of bring about a spiritual rebirth of the plant. So the spiritual effects of it are more active. Mm, okay. And then certain plants have medicinal qualities. So... I, I remember this one elixir of Melissa, this person took of um, Melissa, and he um, in, he gave it to a hen, and all of her feathers fell off. I think her nails fell off her feet, and then everything started growing back afterwards. It was like a regenerative. So spagyric product, products, whenever they're created, and you give them to someone else, will typically have a healing effect. Spagyric products, when you consume them after you've made them yourself, will have more of a spiritual effect on you. Hmm. It's, it's, it's almost like a divide between thaumaturgy and thurgy. Mm-hmm. It isn't really a divide. It's more like a, a single instrument with two strings. You pluck one, it's going to make the other one vibrate, kind of. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. But, that makes um, sense. Right. It can be used for health, for yourself, for others. Although, heaven forbid, you should ever say, I'm an alchemical doctor, because then you'll be in jail. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it can also be used on spiritual effects. It can clear blockages in you. In Chinese people would probably, the Chinese medicine would use it to clear energy blockages, possibly. Uh, you would use it to clear psychic blockages in yourself in Western alchemy. So it's it's got multiple purposes. It's not just for one thing or another. And it, it can become incredibly complex. You can use different plants together to make an elixir, which is a, a compound of several different um, tinctures of um, plants to have a specific effect. And the astrological timing is actually very important whenever you're doing this sort of thing, you would probably want to start the process of actually making the tincture during uh, a waxing moon or a full moon so that the negative the negative effects of a waning moon don't affect it. You want to do it whenever the planet itself is um, in effect during that planetary hour. So you, you actually have to be kind of careful about how you time things out with this for not necessarily no effect, but maximal effect to get the most out of it that you possibly can when you're doing it. So that's another aspect that kind of drew me to the Dionysian um, side of things because stars figure very, very prominently in, of course, the Starry Bowl or likely even eventually a Starry Bear. And so that, that also kind of drew me to an awareness of its Dionysian effects. If you've ever read anything off of the Orphic Lamellae that they have um, unearthed from places like the Black Sea region, it often talks about setting the Dionysian initiate in the stars. Hmm. As, and that's 
that's like a, a sign or symbol of their immortality in a way. And that that's just another one thing that just it just clicked for me right then and there. So yes, that's what kind of got my interest in alchemy going. So in the midst of all this really powerful experiential stuff with with the Dionysus and, and his retinue, there's also this very studied background to it as well from from what I'm I'm gathering is it you know the the common misconception with Dionysus as with Odin com- commonly being well you know they're just you know gods of ecstasy you know there's no cold logic there behind what you're doing either where you know it sounds like your experience with with alchemy especially in this case runs completely contrary to to that notion and mm-hmm. kind of bringing the, bringing those disparate halves together in a in its own kind of alchemy if you will no, absolutely. One of the things that really struck me when I was um, stepping in the story bowl was the idea that Socrates himself might have been something of an Orphic initiate. There is a an entrance in Plato where he is sprinkling someone with flour, having them sit in a stool, and they're asking Socrates, what are you doing to me? I'm be quiet. I'm preparing you for initiation. Huh. And it, it the flower going over them is kind of like the Titanos on their faces of the of the Titans whenever they hack Dionysus apart. It's that. It's the. Whenever we wear Titanos in our own rituals, it's like your littlest finger brushing the garments of death. It's that that encounter with death that has the initiated component in a way similar to what Dionysus himself underwent underneath the blade of the Titans. And seeing that flower get sprinkled on him kind of makes me think of something along the lines of Eleusis or something of uh, with Demeter's influence in it. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's still not Orphic. Mm-hmm. It actually kind of draws it in closer to the Orphic during their context and their time than necessarily ours because Demeter for the story below doesn't really show up for us. Is she more like she's just kind of there as, as a figure in the background, like Demeter being um, this, this probably a, from what I'm, I'm gathering and, a, and I have understood sort of this great mother figure who sits in the background and is kind of the ground on which a lot of these things occur. Yeah, I would say that's fair. I would say that's pretty fair, and especially as a historical figure uh, and being foundational in what had started for Bacchic Orphism, she is, she's indispensable, she's indisposable. So I wouldn't necessarily say that she's out of it, but kind of a background role, kind of foundational rather than the structures that you stare at, kind of like the ground they're sitting on. I, I would say that's actually uh, pretty fair. And one of the things about the story story bowl that um, kind of makes it hard to completely wrap your head around is the fact that we don't necessarily have a set pantheon. There's certain forms, certain rituals that the story bowl has, but they're not totalizing or excluding. You know what I mean? All so too well. 
Right. So if you're doing Storyville Ritual and Demeter shows up for you, okay, that's awesome. <laughs> if you're doing Storyville Ritual and Helios shows up for you, okay, well, maybe he's in your own personal understanding of how you do Orphism. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the, that way for the entire tradition. So you're you're allowed that space to explore and develop the relationship if it's there. Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. So in in Henry, we have the notion of we each of us carries on our hearth cultus, and the the kindred has its own cultus that we all kind of build together in community, and it's a shared theological backdrop to which our own hearth cultist experiences can happen in. Mm -hmm. and, and so when we do group ritual and, well, I had this experience, well, it's not invalidated. It's just that was your experience in the ritual, and it may or may not influence the larger group ritual, depending on what the impact is and what divination bears out. So I, I'm, I'm finding a lot of parallels. Yeah, yeah. It's probably the most... No, it's probably the least limiting way of approaching religious experience that we have that actually allows it to develop out into what it can be rather than forcing it into a mold. So it, it actually allows the lived experience of religion to take full root instead of necessarily one person dominating over another and saying, no, no, it has to be this way. And if you're doing it that way, then it's wrong. Or anything like that. It, it's it's the least dogmatic approach I think a person could possibly have to it. Yeah, I I tend to favor that approach as as an explanation to how general polytheism itself works. Is that um, you know my hearth will necessarily not have the experience of say a hearth in Texas. You know, right. The environment's different. <laughs> how they relate to the plants are different. Um, my relationship to fire here in Michigan is going to be dynamically different from how somebody relates to fire in, say, California. Mm -hmm. so, you know, especially Western California right now. Oh, my Lord. So awful watching that. True. But I, I, I think that that kind of dyna, dyna, dynamism, there we go. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that forms part of a powerful community but also i think that this is is dionysus approach to people because of how many different faces he wears indeed yeah absolutely do you, do you just... guys do you guys think, do you ever run into uh like how do you separate the differing faces of how gods appear or spirits appear from actual differences in different pantheons. Where do you draw the line on, on something like that? Like, uh, for example, if, if someone's coming from a very uh, Northern perspective and all of a sudden, um, you know, a, a, a deity or entity from way outside of that comes in and becomes involved for that one person is there ever a point, I mean, especially you guys have initiatory traditions, is there a point where you you say, well, okay, that I'm, I'm glad that happened for you, but we should try to steer it back this way, or that might have not been who you thought it was? How, how do you handle those sort of situations? 
I've actually never been in that situation personally, so I actually couldn't answer your question really. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that uh, part, of, part of the power of polytheism is that um, in, in terms of, you know, somebody will say, well, I had this really powerful experience with Odin. I think that he came to me in the guise of a one-eyed homeless man. Mm-hmm. I've had that happen where there was no bullshit. This is definitely, if, if this is not Odin in the flesh, he is having a ride-along time with this guy. Um. And I think that what one of the powerful aspects of polytheism in general is we can have these powerful internal experiences and external experiences because our gods can be both imminent and ascendant depending on how we're approaching them. Uh, I think Caldera uses the uh, analogy of a cave with stalagmites and stalactites being different gods and then the, the roof of the cave being the more general or archetypal approaches to these gods and their ways. Um, you know, in, re- in regards to, you know, the Northern tradition having certain mysteries and certain things. So I wouldn't expect Dionysus at all to show up in a context of the experience of taking up the roots. Um, I wouldn't be opposed to it, but I would have to seriously look at the context for why that might occur. And likewise, you know, um, if somebody goes through a, a dedicatory ritual to Dionysus, I would have to really question what's going on if, for some reason, Odin shows up. Like there, <laughs> need, there, there needs to be some kind of continual process behind how you got from point A to point B, even if I don't fully understand all the logic involved. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it just leaves me to a lot of pondering, because I, I just, you know, at some point in time... What's the difference between the the definition that a lot of uh, quote unquote hardcore polytheists are making? What's the difference between that and Wicca then, where it's all one thing and it's all interconnected? You're gonna make me talk about Platonism. <laughs> <laughs> Twisting go. your arm on that one. Well, the reason I mean, go ahead. You know, I, I will let you talk on that. It just you know, these are the things that make me think. Like, uh, you know, for example. And, and my students will probably hate me for, for telling this, but, you know, I've had instances where one of them would say, we were doing such and such ritual in our tradition, and, and this deity showed up, and I would tell them, that's nice, tell them to go away. You're not part of that tradition. <laughs> yeah, negotiation can be a wonderful thing. <laughs> you know, I, <clears throat> it, it is interesting. I just try to sort these things out in my head. But, yes, go ahead. Talk about Platonism. Okay. So, Platonism. Most people nowadays, whenever they hear the subject, automatically think of a kind of monotheism, or they want to talk about how Plato was a crypto-Christian, and Socrates too, because why not claim him as well, in the way that they talk about things like the good or the one. But that's something of a misunderstanding Um, Actually, saying it's a misunderstanding might be a bit of an understatement. When Plato was going on about the one, and I know this seems far away from the subject, but I I will get there. I will soldier on. (laughs) When Plato talks about the one, he's not talking about a thing you can point at. He's not talking about an ultra deity or a king god or something like that. He's talking about a negative 
principle. He's talking about the principle of individuation and how it relates to all things from this miniature pumpkin I'm holding in my hand right now that you can't see, but I totally am. To me, the computer I'm talking on, even a group like a kindred, to a nation, to a god. The principle of individuation is something that, without really acting in any specific way, determines what kind of individual you are or helps you describe it. So when you take the principle of individuation (laughs) all the way up to the, the tippy top and say, okay, what is an individual God? An individual God as a pure individual doesn't have anything like we would call essence. It doesn't have an essential nature as a pure individual or what would be called a henad in the writings of people like Proclus or the contemporary writing of Edward Butler. So it becomes almost impossible to say anything about the individual deity in question, except their name. This isn't to say that the god can't come down or descend into being in their own way and have essence, decide to have it, decide to express themselves in an active way in the cosmos. It's just to say that at the very tippy top, they are previous to all relation to anything else other than themselves. And at that point, all you can really say is Dionysus, Odin, Freya, Bray. You can say their names. And that's as far as intellectually as you're really going to be able to understand what they are. At that level, though, there is no pantheon or pantheons. None. They choose the pantheonic structure. It's their decision. At that level, Dionysus is not the son of Zeus. Neither is Apollo. Zeus is not the son of Kronos. At that level. When we see them in being when they give us myth to understand how they're acting and being and how how their essential nature expresses itself. Then we start to see pantheons form. But their primary nature in Platonic understanding, at that absolute, not necessarily just the top, but in that primary individuality, there's no such thing as pantheon. So that limiting human understanding of how the gods interact with one another doesn't necessarily come into play for what a god actually is. But the pantheon is our way of structuring our relation to a specific ontology, a specific way of being. And so we can't really sit here and say necessarily that someone like Dionysus can't pop his head in to heathen space and say, hi, how y'all doing? Or that any other god should be so suffer such similar privation of not being able to enter into. There are, I don't know if you know this, Hindu deities who are worshipped over in Japan as kami. Mm-hmm. We've seen Dionysus in China and Hercules in China. So the, the, the question of 
this strict impermeable barrier. It's not even a question. It's not there. What a lot of people do whenever they approach their pantheon, they want to keep it pure, pristine, as it was in the past, at least how they like to romanticize it. And it's not actually like that. If, say, someone like Dionysus was Sabazios in another pantheon, and then he migrated into Greece with slaves, he's not native to the freaking Greek pantheon. He is treated as an outsider deity. It begs the question of how open is that barrier? It's very, very open. But it's not necessarily up to us to put the gate open for someone else. It's up to them to come and go as they choose. We can, however, try to understand the experience in our own way through previous understandings of our religion, the understanding of the other religion, and the possibility of receiving new myth to contextualize and understand exactly what it is that deity is doing and what they necessarily want. And that is a very, very slipshod, rough understanding from a platonic perspective of exactly what a pantheon is. <laughs> see, I see where you're coming from. Uh, now, bear with me, because I'm, I'm on the same page with you sometimes. Uh, but okay. also understand that I'm not bound by any sort of consistency. No, totally okay. So <laughs> that's one of my cardinal rules is I, I'm not bound by any sort of consistency. But on the, you know, the flip side of that is even with Caldera's uh, uh, visualization of, of the stalactites coming down from the roof of the cave, we know that from current theory, there's essentially six wavelengths, six particles that were the foundation of all reality that we see. So in my mind, that brings us down to at least six fundamental pantheons or entities. I waffle back and forth on that a lot because I can see okay. both as being valid. Describe me what those wavelengths and particles are. Oh, I, I wouldn't be able to remember the names of them without going back to running through all the various web links that I've got somewhere. But... Are you referring to, like, like the, the stuff beneath the quarks? Yeah, exactly. So, like, the sub-sub-subatomic... Correct. So, like, the We're strings of current, the string current, theory. Current string theory or particle theory, yeah, exactly. And the, the number's going to vary depending on the theory. I think the most common one I see is six, but it always makes me wonder about how fundamentally um, universal everything is. Like, obviously, everything interacts on a level that's so simultaneously large and small that, that we as humans may never be able to understand it. But it would seem that at some level there is some sort of difference. And I just made you both go silent, so I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm um, needling on it. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I go back and forth on these things because you know, obviously, from a lot of uh, of uh, Native American myths or even the the uh, pantheons that that I follow, there there are elements of both in play there as well with how uh, the 
example, the Inca tribes uh, absorbed and and made part of their pantheon uh, deities from other tribes and, and vice versa. So this thing, you know, obviously it does happen and it doesn't invalidate any sort of spirit or anything like that. So, and here's something that I contemplate as well as we talk about this sort of thing, as long as we're going on weird tangents for a second. Um, so, for example, the the bigger named spirits that we know, right? The ones that are easier to find information on, there's easier to find worshipers on, there's easier to find references in pop culture. By the very nature of how human in information is being shared right now, are those deities or entities squeezing out the deities or entities that would function those same roles within those pantheons? I would say no. Um, how would you how would you deprive a deity even if you were another deity how would you well I'm just in the, in the context of, of how we're doing human interaction so say we're please we're, understand I'm not saying how would you James Stovall correct 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 a deity correct I, I, well and, and that's kind of the nature of the nature of the question is that you know we're not talking necessarily about the the deities or entities themselves we're talking about how they interact with humans and at a human level so um you know for the, you know the, the example is there the of of so in our societies so many things are compared to the greco-roman uh deities and does that mean at some point in time is it possible that they have so for some of the the groups that have absorbed or or begun working with those deities have they squeezed out the ritual of interacting with people for for those same sort of functions i don't know it's, it's kind of a weird question i'm not sure i'm speaking how my mind is seeing it but Uh oh, so, have I lost you so, both? Are we gone now? Have hmm. I gone down the rabbit hole too far? <laughs> I, I don't think so. No. Um, okay. I, I think that. Go ahead. Go ahead, Richard. No, I, I just laughed. Go on. Um, I, I think of uh, you know, in, in the in heathen tradition, we we have very little actual rock solid. This is definitely old heathen stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so much of what we have that comes to us from the Northern tradition cosmology and s various sources uh, comes to us by and large secondhand through Christian sources, Christian interpolation, uh, the writing down of oral tradition. Um, there's just simply not the amount of breadth of stuff to dig our teeth into that comes to us rather untainted down through history. So, to a certain degree, the very essence of the separation between ourselves, the, the rupture between ourselves and the ancestors of our various religions, necessitates that some of our relationships have probably fallen by the wayside. And mm -hmm. this is where, where gnosis and personal experience comes into play. Um, so, you know, um, when, when, when people ask me, well, uh, what particular... Uh, culture group do you follow i tend to say well i'm i'm and generally speaking i'm icelandic and norse which you know the two, two rather go together um 
but I'm also a bit of Germanic as well. And the reason for that is because, to my mind, there's such a lack of of resources to to pin down. Yes, this is definitely what they did. So that, um, to no small part of my understanding, um, Reconstruction kind of tapers off about halfway through reconstructing the map, at least for heathens, because we don't have a lot of of data mm-hmm. beyond a certain mm-hmm. point. Um, and so, so, so if you're not willing to engage in gnosis at some point, um, you've, you're kind of, you, you've got half the map and you're going to have to fill in the other half. Right. Now, whether or not you've got the, the chops to do it or desire is, is another story. Um, but yeah, even in the, in the Northern tradition, you know, we can look at different places like the, the, the Germans, Definitely, at some point, worship Dionysus, and that's no small part because of Roman influence. Yeah, um, you know, so so these pantheons are all e- even in a in a linear human oriented understanding. Anthropologically, all of these pantheons intersect at some point, whether it's because of Roman uh, dreams of conquest or just drift of trade and resources. I mean. I'm not saying there were Viking Buddhists, but the fact that we can find caches (laughs) of Buddhist materials in Viking hordes speaks to there being active trade and active relationships. So even if they're not, you know, I I doubt we're going to find a carved wooden idol of the Buddha chilling out in a Viking um, grave good somewhere as an actual devotional idol. But (laughs) there's still the the understanding that some of these gods get inroads that way. Sure. sure. Do you understand? Sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Please, please. Do you understand what I would give to see a Viking doing freaking Shaolin forms on the battlefield? <laughs> see, that's the that's the uh, secret Berserker level five technique. They don't what? teach you that till you're really, really in deep with Odin. <laughs> I, 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 I do. I definitely see where you guys are coming from. I just these are the things I that I should spend way too much time thinking about that I shouldn't probably because it doesn't matter one way or another ultimately in the end but um so if i could paint a broad brush picture just to give you maybe an idea of of what i'm talking about so say that um i'm working with a a slavic group and there is something that within the context of those rituals and those initiations that there was or is a proper trickster deity for that pantheon if but because of popular culture right now and you know you're going to know exactly what i'm talking about sarinth all of a sudden everything's coming up fucking loki i don't know what you're talking about all of a sudden at what point in time do we try to say no maybe that wasn't loki or maybe that was somebody else maybe you do you understand where I'm coming from? Is at what point in time does that sort of, like I said, things I think about? So, throw the bones in divine. Yeah, pretty much. Hmm. Yeah, ask them. Um, who was knocking on our door during that ritual? And just wait for them to tell you, and have the trust that they will be, you know, truthful and accurate. Oh, trust. Well, yeah, there's an issue. But... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, sure. Ask the trickster deity and trust that they'll tell you the truth. That'll help. Well, maybe you want to ask someone else too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, we're gonna, gonna go ask a politician about how the economy is doing too. Yeah, please don't do that. We'll tell you about Wall Street instead of the economy. Yeah, please, don't get me on, please don't get me started on politics either. Um, but yeah, I think in in the story bull tradition, we would definitely divine and see if it was what we thought it was. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily need to go to the trickster deity to get a fully truthful answer. You could go to another one and get a decent response, I believe. Sarah, would that be the same for you? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, the, the beautiful thing about, you know, the Northern tradition is we, we have the medium of the runes of nothing else that are, if not impartial, they'll give you as much of the unvarnished truth and then some of what you can handle. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I look at the, uh, the toys and my, my limited experience with them and the whammies they've put down in oh. just what little experience I've had with them. And I, I, I find them very analogous to the runes as as powerful initiatory spirits, as powerful methods of divine communication that kind of strip away... Uh, it, 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 it separates the ice cream from the bullshit very effectively. <laughs> yes. Well, is this, is, is this the exact point in time in this conversation where we start talking about this uh, transition to starry bear tradition? What is what is that all about? Oh. <laughs> did did Seraph not warn you that I do this? No. <laughs> no one warned me. Ah, <laughs> uh, man, from my own um, personal experience. <sighs> This, this kind of gets into talking about Sanian himself first. Okay. Sanian is the first Orpheo Teleste of the Story Bowl tradition, and he has basically been on a Dionysian road for about 20 years now, plus. Mm-hmm. And the Story Bowl started to come together, I think, in 2014, 2015, something like that. Probably about, maybe it was 2013 it really started to hit for him, especially when he was given the toys and told, okay, this is what they are, this is how you work with them. And um, so the, the Story Bowl tradition started to come through in his poetry, and then it started to shift to the Story Bear, especially with some of his um, latest books, like Monstrous Things and Pandemonium and Silence, where Norse gods just started showing up. Actually, it was earlier than that, with Strange Spirits too, where we started to see Odin um, poking his head into uh, Stanian's poetry. <laughs> and typically the way I look at Sanian's poetry is, yeah, it's devotional poetry, but there's there's a myth-making element to there, which I think some people have a difficulty really even beginning to grasp because that's the kind of authority that Sanian has that he can't even control, that a pope would probably kill to have in making new scripture. But... Again, it's not necessarily something that really he can put under his belt and say, now you have to obey me. It's something that a person has to take, read themselves, and understand their own context in it, which is an entirely different kind of authority figure from anything uh, that we're typically familiar with. It's it's the proper role, I think. At least one of the proper roles of the Gorphia to last would be the ability to make new myth, or to receive it, rather. Mm-hmm. But um, during his writing, the, the Norse gods started to pop in. 
And whenever I'm at work at Trinity, I, I work in a plastics factory. You, you just you do these automatic motions all the time of putting plastic bags in the boxes or something like that. And you can basically just shut down your conscious mind while you're doing it. It's not necessarily an ecstatic state or anything like that, but it's it's conducive to it. Uh, sitting there thinking about after Ragnarok, after everything burns um, and then freezes, about what would happen afterwards. And I saw Frey, not at the Well of Mimir, but the Well of Memory. He's completely parched, and Dionysus offers him a drink. And I told Sandy about it. And he's like, oh, that's very important. And that actually helps close up a, a hole for me that I had. And he puts it in this freaking book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was I was really, really pleased and frankly quite astonished at the fact that I, at the time, not an initiate, had apparently seen something valuable. So... um yeah, I was I was just kind of surprised. I didn't quite understand what was going on with Norse deities, broadly speaking, Norse deities, northern deities, being involved in a, a branch of orphism I didn't really understand. But um, it was it was definitely an interesting reading. I'll, I'll put it that way. Mm. So he comes up to me about not comes up to me online and says, well, hey, we're going to go do this ritual at such and such a place, and I really think you ought to come with us. I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it. It's like, you know, I really want to meet this guy, and I really want to meet Delina and a few of the other folk involved with this Starry Bull stuff. So you know what? Yeah, I'm going to. I've never driven out anywhere out of the state by myself before. Mm-hmm. And See, I have to go. pilgrimage. Yeah, right. That's yeah. You know, that's pretty much what it was. And but I, I completely just go gung ho for it. It's like, yeah, I'll do it, no problem. So about a week before we're supposed to go up to this place and do this ritual, I'm sitting in my living room, and I'm playing through it again. I'm thinking about whatever Norse deities could ever want with orphism, and I think about Odin and some of the similarities between him and Dionysus, and I think about Thor and Frey and Freya. And right as I'm done playing around with the concept, I guess, of Freya, I'm not seeing in my living room anymore the computer that's sitting in front of me. I am seeing a cave. And um, I, I come off a step in the cave to the cave floor, and I turn the corner, and I see uh, a man bound to a stone slab. And there is a snake over him. Wow, I really didn't think I'd cry. There is a snake over him, dripping venom onto his face, and he's screaming. I am t- I am typically not the kind of thinker to um, see these uh, a picture this well developed and it 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 just hit me like like a, a bloody impact 
this is not something I, I asked to see or I wanted to. And I was in no way, shape, or form in any kind of mental state where I'd be able to go off looking for it myself. And he's just screaming. It's, it's absolutely the worst thing I've ever seen. Because this is, this is a being that should not be in this state at all. I, I immediately start shaking my head. I try looking at anything in the room, focusing on it, trying to get my head, my mind off of what I'm seeing. And then after a little bit, it works. I, I the the sound in my ears recedes. I, I I don't hear them anymore. I don't see it. It goes away. And since I am a very very intelligent person, I don't tell a soul <laughs> because <laughs> it's just a fluke. Clearly. I'm I'm never gonna have to deal with that ever again. Ah, no, 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 <laughs> no, no. Oh, denial is not just a river ego. And like I said, this was a week before we uh, we went up to do our thing. So we go up. We the week passes. We go up, and it it happens um, during that week. I, I see him again. I I immediately just flick myself out of that headspace again. Uh, still saying nothing, still complete denial and refusal to engage. And we go up and we sit down. It's it's late by the time I get there. I had been driving for 12 hours, which should have only taken like eight hours. I'm exhausted. and um, But we're sitting there talking and everything. We're having a good time. And then we, we high off to our hotel rooms. We go to sleep. We get up the next morning. And we go and do the ritual. It goes off pretty much without a hitch. No, no real problems. And then we come back for uh, just to talk after everything's done, just kind of reground a bit. And uh, we get divination sprung on us. Oh, surprise divination. We're all going <laughs> to get together and ask some questions and get some answers. So my turn comes up, and I'm sitting in front of Sandy. And... I, I just keep it simple. I'm just going to ask about my ancestral lines and see if I have any overhanging depth that maybe I'm not aware of. Really, really kind of milk toast stuff. So I thought. And I ask about the Franks, and I ask about the Hughes, and I ask about the Kessler lines. And, oh, no, no debt, you're fine. You're fine, no debt. No, no, you're fine, no debt. Okay, what about the Norris? Well, Norris line, you have no debt to them. But your entire line has debt to Loki. Oh. Um, I started off protesting very gently. I'll, I'll say that. Um, I uh, said no. Oh, God, please, no. <laughs> and they, they kind of looked a little bit surprised, Glean and Sanium. And I I believe at one point I actually said the most idiotic thing that's probably ever come out of my mouth. I would honestly rather it be Odin. <laughs> just, just, wow, I can't believe the stupidity of me saying that, but... <laughs> I I said it, and 
Galena said, Loki can be very kind and gentle to his people. That was it. That I was just snapped. And the screaming started up in my head immediately. I could barely see the hotel room again anymore. It, it, I was just right there in the cave again, watching his freaking face dissolve from that stuff, heal instantly, and then get dissolved again. It was, it was agony. It was misery. And I just started bawling, telling them what was going on in my head. And, um, yeah, I, I pretty much realized that I was going to have a place in Starry Bear whether I liked it or not at, at that point. Mm. And that's that's my weird Starry Bear origin story, I guess. Yeah, I mean, wow. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening. I um, Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm still terrified. You know, I, I got to be honest. I, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to see that again, uh, even even talking about it now. Look, let me put this in context. I am not the kind of person to necessarily let it all hang out with people that I have just met the day before. Sure. I am not. I, I don't want to give in to all this traditional male, male um, bullshit of, uh, you know, don't cry or anything like that. But I absolutely do not cry in front of people that I just met. <laughs> I was folded over myself on the floor, screaming and bawling. It was one of the most ridiculous things that I have ever had to encounter in in my life, just flat out, right then and there. And they didn't care. The gods just didn't. didn't Loki didn't give a shit. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm hi. Here I am. You're not going to ignore me anymore. And. I just, I absolutely do not want it. I'm still terrified to this day of going anywhere near him because, oh, it was awful. But some stuff you just can't refuse. Mm-hmm. And especially when it comes to, to Loki. Um, I, I, un, I understand from a personal interaction with Loki, from a personal relationship with Loki why you do not want to go back there I also understand uh, at least to some degree why it might be utterly necessary for you to so I, I feel you <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's experiences like these that make certain of our gods Odin Loki Dionysus among them uh, so difficult for our modern society to deal with because there's I mean, when you, when you get into the concept of mythic time, yeah. you know, there's always a part of Loki in this place, just as there's always a part of Odin on the tree, just as there's always a part of Dionysus being torn apart by the Titans, so yep. on and so forth. And I think it's it's on us to look into that ugliness and see our gods in that space. And that is... Um, it brings to mind, again, Lewis is great for this, uh, Till We Have Faces, you know, and he's, he's uh, describing the the smell of the holy is blood and it is the place of sacrifice. And mm-hmm. that is terif- maddening and terrifying for people in our, our very staid, secular, pseudo-secular, very Christian uh, culture of... You know, you're not only worshiping a, a very 
distraught, broken God. I mean, I'm a former Catholic. I mean, seeing a, a guy on a crucifix isn't anything new. Right. But it's in your face and visceral in a way that most Catholics who aren't of the mystic persuasion don't get, and most Protestants in general can't comprehend. Right. There's such a terrible sterility to modern conceptions of spirituality that it really pains me. But yeah, I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. And I think that uh, especially when we, we get whammied over the head with certain mysteries, I mean, in this case, it's the bound Loki. Um, there's a sense of, of privacy and power that's, that taps into these. I think because these mysteries have been ignored for so long um, that that in that reaching out we are utterly vulnerable before the gods in these most private of painful moments and they have chosen to share this with us. And I mean at some point you can't say no to that because it's it's there, it's in your face and it won't go away. Yeah, very much so. That's legit. I mean, you're, you're talking. You're, you're talking about a, a mystery experience. I mean, I think part part of the the power of a mystery is that in some ways the mysteries protect themselves because you know you you verbally explained and emotionally explained what you went through, but until somebody sees Loki bound, experiences the smell of his sizzling flesh, sees Segan's face, they're not gonna get it. Now, there's um. The, experience, the experiential aspect of it is what's so shattering, not the, the intellectual understanding of it. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. I, I think this is a throughput for, for the starry bull and bear traditions in general is that it, these aren't these cannot be just intellectual exercises. I mean, that's something you've been been um, putting forward with the the points you made on alchemy earlier. Mm -hmm. Was um, you know the tearing apart process is um, a principal part of the experience of alchemy. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's right at the center of it, really. Spagiri, Sparagamus of uh, Dionysus. It's uses the same practically the same terminology it's it's right there even um in things like energetic alchemy where you don't necessarily have the uh, the, the physical components you you are still in a very real sense being cut up you are being burned and refined with just the energy practices itself and there's there's different ways of combining the the wet and dry ways as they call it but um ultimately the, the process is fundamentally similar but you, you have to experience it yourself and you have to go into that place and be there with it and sit with it as it happens 
So that's that's the veil of the mysteries right there. It's your own self ultimately, and the fact that you contain it in yourself and can't really transmit it in any way other than giving someone the ability to go through the experience themselves and preparing them for it. That's the only way that you can really share it in any way. And it's very much a lesser sharing. The 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 greater ability to understand to share would be after you've both gone through the same personal experience. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even in your own explanation of how alchemy works when you do it for another person, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you go through the same kinds of processes, but even when you hand off the elixir, uh, the person's still not going to get what you, what you the, the alchemist, would get out of it. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think if we if we think of this in an expanded sense, whether you're talking about an Orpheo Teleste, a Scald, a Bard, you know, um, they have to distill the, the the words and impressions and expressions down to ways that other people can grasp at and experience for themselves. But until they have that experience, until they're able to go through the process of of the, the breaking down and the purifying and then coming together, I mean. That you, you can communicate about alchemy itself, but until you experience it, I mean, you, you've talked about the the, the uh, experiences of the the wine and everything else, but until I actually go through a similar process, I mean, I can explain to somebody what brewing is like all day, all night, but right until somebody goes and does it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different beast. Yes, indeed. Speaking of Dionysian mysteries, how about them toys? Yes, let's let's talk briefly about those toys. Yeah. If we can. <laughs> so, the toys of Dionysus are the spiritual initiators par excellence for the story of old tradition. And they're, in our tradition, there's ten of them. Typically, in um, antiquity, we get seven. But for us, there's ten. There is Sphera, the ball, which is typically the way that we begin working with the toys. Sphera is the, the invitation. Uh, there's Astragaloi, the dice, which presides over our ancestral mysteries to a good degree. There is Trochos, the wheel, which in its own way represents time, but there's, there's actually a lot of different things that could be used to describe each individual toy. There's Rhombos, the bull roarer. There is Stribolos, the top. Cretella, the rattle. Hegnia, Campestiguia, the puppet. Pocos, the tuft of wool. Mela, the golden apples. And Isoptron, the mirror. And going through the process of the toys is, in and of itself, the a process of initiation for the starry bull. What the toys are in, in the, the context of Orphism is the guard, guardians of Dionysus before they're going to kill him. Give him these toys to distract him. Some people, I think, say that they came from Hera, and I think in other contexts we don't really know where they came from. So their, their provenance is actually kind of sketchy, but they're there. They're very present, obviously. 
And when you work with them, it's like any other process of initiation. It's not necessarily like any other process of initiation where they're all identical, but you're going to get surprised. You are going to be made uncomfortable or you're going to see things in your own life through a, a different lens, like going through the toys myself and seeing the ancestral traumas that were kind of done to my family, seeing some of my own faults and mistakes and the fact that like <laughs> being told by a toy, you know, half the negative crap that's ever happened in your life is entirely your fault because you just want it and you ask for it. <laughs> oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> yeah, this doesn't sound like the result. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's just me being a drama queen. They're they're totally right. Uh <laughs> that's fair. It it really is. So yeah. I, I really don't know how much exactly I want to say about working with them. One thing that the toys really love isn't food, isn't any particular kind of thing besides beauty. You can give the toys offerings of beauty and they really appreciate it. The toys themselves can also eat things like miasma. They can be used for magical work. We have one person over in California who is also an Orphiotelest at this point who is developing, well, has developed and is teaching their own magical system based off the toys. I have not gone through that course yet, though. So not only do they contain the initiatory structure or path for the story bowl or for orphism, our, our particular brand or brands of orphism in general, but it seems that they contain every other single mystery of the larger story group that is currently or will eventually come to be. Because it, I don't think it's just going to stop at uh, Story Bull or Story Bear. There's going to be other constellations, I guess you could say. I so, have joked with Sanyan on occasion about there being a Starry Wolf in the future, and maybe I should just keep my damn mouth shut. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that actually might be a good idea, because... Not only is Sanya listening, but we all know that there's others listening in too. And they're like, hey, yeah, yeah that, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't we put that on your shoulders there, Saren? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your sense of adventure? I left it with Odin, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was in my eye. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was mean. I'll stop now. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. No, no, I mean, in, in that case, Sphera makes actually a, a great deal of sense, you know, the initiation into wisdom. Yes. That's, um, that's a good point. I wonder if, um, that would be a good re temporary replacement for a lost eye. Hmm. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I so... just, uh, it, it brings to mind Wednesday's glass eye in American Gods for some reason. <laughs> Oh, that freaking show. 
right? Yeah. Seen a few episodes and just wow. Um, yeah, there's there's nothing quite like getting initiated into the story bowl and having your brush up against a story bear and then going to a friend's house and him saying, Oh, Hey, I downloaded the show American gods. I'm going to put on episode one. It's like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh they can't get out of my face. I'm going to be part so, of the yeah. starry cactus tradition. I'm just going to sit around and be prickly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you say that, but I mean, you're kind of already there, Jim. I'm a natural. <laughs> You so, always sound so pleasant, though. <laughs> well, that's the thing about cacti is they look really nice from a distance, and then when you try to hug them, it's <laughs> everywhere. Not advisable. So I think we're starting to come to the end of our, our session tonight, but I, I really want to thank you, Richard, for, for coming out and speaking with us and, and being so willing to share so much depth of your experiences and, and your practice. So I really appreciate you coming yeah, out. Thank and, you and so much. Your, your personal experience there. That was, that was uh, really powerful. I was just sitting and soaking it in because it was, it was, that was really powerful. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. It was a wonderful experience and I would not uh, mind repeating it whatsoever. Good. Well, I definitely yeah, want to have you back. All okay, right. Well, thank you very much. Well, with that, I guess we'll call it a night then. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Around Grandfather Fire. Uh, keep an eye out for future episodes. We'll make that announcement on our Facebook page. And you can also keep an eye out for us. Uh, Sarenth, you can find Sarenth at, at Sarenth on Twitter. And also on WordPress, you can find me at uh, Wandering White Hat is my Instagram page. Or James at the Owl is my Twitter page. You can email me, jim at thewanderingowl.com. Sarenth, you can email at sarenth at gmail.com and ask us questions, suggest guests, uh, give us some feedback on the show and and uh, help share the show. Like I said previously, share the show with some other people, get the word around and, and help us uh, to find more people that want to share experiences around Grandfather Fire. So thank you everybody for listening tonight and... Uh, We'll talk to you soon.